this morning I, I'd like to <clears throat> share a message. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, there are, maybe you, you don't know, but the fact is there, there's certain uh, Mennonite groups that <clears throat> they generally uh, use uh, pretty much the same passage of scripture uh, for certain of the uh, important uh, times throughout the year and uh, including council and communion they, they use pretty much the same passage of scripture each time uh, and uh, th that that's good I mean I have not, no problem with that if uh, you know as you've heard me say and I'm know I'm sure as it is in your own experience you can read a, a passage of scripture and you, you can read a passage of scripture that's very familiar to you because of how it's used throughout the years by many people. And, and, and because of the power of the word, uh, something new and fresh can just jump out at you from time to time. And so even though some of these churches may use the same passage time after time for some of these services, I'm sure as the Holy Spirit works in the heart of those, those preachers that, that they can share something that will challenge and, 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 and jump out at the congregation uh, each time as the as as God works through them. Um, this message that I'm sharing this morning, uh, according to my record, I, I, I haven't shared it for seven and a half years. And so <laughs> it's probably time to share it again. Uh, it's, it is uh, a, about salvation, the, the, the thread of the message of salvation that runs from the beginning of the, God's word uh, to the end of God's word. And I'm calling it this, the scarlet thread of redemption. We use the word thread sometimes, suggesting something that's running through something. And I don't mean just a piece of cloth, but a theme that's running through a situation or through a story. Um, it's appropriate to call this thread running through the Bible scarlet. Uh, the scarlet thread of redemption because of the, the blood. And, of course, you know what color uh, the blood is. It's, it's by the shedding of blood uh, that our sins can be cleansed and washed away. And this type uh, started in the very beginning of the Bible. Um, <clears throat> well... Actually, the, the term scarlet thread is in the Bible. And many of you maybe have already thought of that as I gave the title. And if, if you can't think where it's at, we will look at it uh, in a little while. <clears throat> well, the, the Bible is certainly a book of, of redemption. It's a book of, of salvation and deliverance for lost mankind. Now, the idea of redemption... has a couple of things to think about. Uh, redemption refers to deliverance. You know, you're delivered from something to something else. Uh, and then also redemption has to do with the price that was paid for that deliverance. Or the ransom, as it sometimes it's called. We are delivered from the, the penalty of sin, which is eternal death and eternal separation from God. 
And then the ransom was God providing that perfect sacrifice in his own self, in his own son, Jesus Christ. Now, to think about the redemptive work of Christ a little more specifically, you could look at at least three, three parts of it. Uh, first of all, to take care of that problem between God and, and mankind, on God's part, he forgives as we, as we have faith in his work. So there's forgiveness. Not only then is there forgiveness, but there's justification to make us right or, or just before him. And then that, that's taking place, that takes place in the now, in the present. But then there's that future, there's that final deliverance one day from the world and, and the power of sin at some time in the future, at that second coming of, of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> um, what I would like to do is to look at a few scriptures, and often I'll just refer to a scripture without us turning to it because I'm looking at general things and not always at specific verses. Um, but I, I will uh, invite you to turn with me to a couple here at the beginning. Um, and it all starts right at the beginning, uh, just soon after uh, the creation, what we call the fall of man. Um, so mankind was, was created, Adam and Eve were created. And then, since God, in his decision and, and by his will made mankind to, to choose, to choose to love and serve him. In that way, of course, they were different than the animals. When they had that choice to obey, they disobeyed. Now, that wasn't a surprise to God. And we read in the New Testament but that long before the foundation of the world was, God was, was providing for sinful man's salvation. That's how much he loved us. Let's look then at Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 3. Verse 7. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7, here's after Adam and Eve have sinned, and this is what it says in verse 7 of chapter 3 of Genesis. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So there is man's attempt to hide, to cover, uh, to do something because they had they realized that they were afraid. They were afraid of being open and just plain open with God. And they, they, they attempted to, to cover themselves, to hide themselves, as it were. Look at verse 21 now. Verse 21 of the same chapter. 
Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord make coats of skins and clothe them. And I've never read of any Bible commentator that, that argued about what this means or what, what's implied here. Blood was shed. Apparently, we take for granted. And God did the covering in his own way. There was an animal sacrifice to make coats of skin to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. God did it. They knew there was a problem, and so we have verse 7. It didn't work in the sight of God. God said, this is the way it needs to be done. And he was setting up a type already of the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. Now, look back at the same chapter still, but in verse 15. And it's just this great verse, again, that, you know, any commentator I've ever read doesn't deny what's being said here. Verse 15 of, of Genesis chapter 3. Here, talk, where, where, where God is saying that I'm, I'm, I'm going to do something. This is the first mention of a, of a Savior, in other words. I'm going to do something. Uh, there's going to be something that's going to happen because of your sin. Verse 15, I read it. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. This is God talking to, to, to the serpent, talking to Satan, as it were. Verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between Satan and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed, suggesting right there that there was going to be a, a seed for mankind, someone for mankind that would be the Savior. Between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head. In other words, in literally interpreted, he, he shall bruise thy head. In other words, he's going to give a, a death blow to your head, Mr. Satan. One day it will happen. But before that happens, thou shalt bruise his heel. Yes, Satan, you'll have a certain leeway. You'll have a certain liberty. I'll give you a certain liberty to go so far. But in the end, he, that seed, will put the death blow to you, Satan. That's what it's saying. Well, now, here we go on this, this journey, and you realize Genesis, Genesis covers a large period of time. And so we'll look at, I'll just make mention of, of certain things that are happening in certain chapters uh, of Genesis, but, but uh, I won't be necessarily turning to them. You have then Cain and Abel born, and then, then you have Seth that was born to Adam and Eve. From Seth, after many years, from his line, from his descendants, eventually came Noah. You know the story of Noah and the ark. Salvation! Salvation for the faithful. And apparently the only faithful ones at that time were Noah and his family. And I'm not preaching a sermon about the ark this morning, but... You know, you, you can think of a sermon in your head, you know, all the types and shadows and the things and the opportunities that the sinful people had and so forth and so on. 
I'm sure God in his goodness and in his fairness, you know, if people would have turned to him during that time, they could have been on the boat also. But apparently there was none except Noah and his family, and they were saved. And so, you know, the, the flood being like a type of destruction and of, of this old world and sin. And the ark being like a type of the church and salvation. And knowing his family being, being like the, the faithful, the righteous. A thread of redemption is going through the world, you see. It, it has, from the time of, uh, of Adam and Eve until now, there's many hundreds of years. And this thread of redemption is moving through. Noah and the ark, of course, are in chapter 6 and surrounding uh, of Genesis. Well, then in chapter 11 of Genesis, you have that um, tower, tower, tower of Babel where um, the people were going away from God, as it were, and were wanting to, to build a, a tower to the heaven, whatever they thought that would do. I'm not sure, but anyway... In uh, smart mankind's thinking that they thought, uh, you know, maybe they could get higher than God or something, I suppose. Or, or get to God in a physical way, you know. Um, God uh, calls confusion in their languages and during that time and, and calls them to spread, to spread over the earth because of that confusion of their tongues. Well, then, in chapter 12 of Genesis, faithful Abraham is called. Wow, what a, what a challenge Abraham was. Um, and, and God said, Abraham, in your seed, through your seed, shall all the earth be blessed. Are we talking about a, a thread of redemption? It, it's continuing, you see. Shall all the world be blessed because of your faithfulness and through your seed. Now, in his humanness, in Abraham's humanness, he tried to help God in this situation. And Ishmael was born. Uh, his, his human, you know, without the blessing of God, his, his humanness in trying to help caused problems, of course, we might say, some might say to this day, because of Ishmael and his seed. But God, but God in his, in his power and in his miraculous way then, it was a miracle. He brought Isaac into the world. Isaac was born from old parents that should not have been conceiving anymore. I mean, it was so unnatural that uh, the mother laughed about the situation and so on. You know the story. Isaac was a miracle child. Uh, the thread of redemption is continuing, you see. And then uh, Isaac was certainly a, a type of Christ, a, a miracle birth, um, offered, offered on the altar. Um, 
put on the altar. Of course, he wasn't killed. You know the story there, of course. But uh, we understand he was probably about 30-some years old, about the same age of Jesus when he died on the cross. Um, anyway, um, but it, it proved the faithfulness of, uh, of Father Abraham. Well, then we have, as we move on, in chapter 32 and surrounding chapters, there's Esau and Jacob. And uh, then Jacob's uh, wrestling with the angel, and his name was changed uh, to Israel, which means prince of God. You know the story after that. The, the sons of, of Jacob the 12 tribes of, of Israel, as it were. And um, they go into Egypt to keep from starving. Son, Joseph is a savior, another type of Christ. If it wouldn't be for young Joseph, uh, the younger, one of the younger of the brothers, uh, if it wouldn't have been for what happened in his life and his faithfulness to God and his stand for right and purity and truth, we don't know what would have happened. But uh, he, he was a savior for the people of God. A whole big story in itself, of course. By providing... Uh, the food that was necessary for the great famine in the world in that day. Joseph. The, I mean, just his whole life, you know, the, the, the happenings of his life could have not been uh, orchestrated by anybody other than God himself. And so you might say salvation by God, the love of God, expressed through the life of, of Joseph for the for the saving of his family and the Israelites. Well, we go on into Exodus then, and so now the, after many years, the Israelites are, as it were, enslaved in Egypt. And Moses is called. The Bible refers to Moses, as you know, as the, the meekest man on the earth. A man that was a, a real leader, and yet the Bible says, he's, says he was the meekest. Challenge, um, man, man, that is not a challenge for you and I, to be, to be that kind of person. To be the leader that we should be, but in God's eyes be meek about it. Yes, he was called, and then... And then that was, there was that miraculous deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt and from the Egyptians. You know, it ended up with all those plagues. That last plague being the blood, the sacrificial lamb, very specific uh, Things were, were given about how that lamb was to be cared for and provided for and slain. And then some of the blood of that lamb taken and put over the door, around the door of the 
homes of the houses of the Israelites. And this was the death plague coming upon the houses of the Egyptians and the houses of the people in the land. But, but God said, if the blood is applied to your doors, Israelites, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's exactly the, the phrasing that's used there in, in Exodus. And so, of course, you know, somebody has taken that very phrase and made a song that we sing from time to time. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Are you, are you seeing this scarlet thread of redemption? From the beginning, hundreds and hundreds of years now we've gone. In Exodus chapters 19 to 32, we have Moses with God in Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. By the way, Horeb and Sinai, they're... They're known to be the same general place. Uh, sometimes the words are used interchangeably, so don't let that confuse you. Horeb and Sinai, uh, mount, mountains, are pretty much the same, the same place. Uh, different terms used for it at different times. <clears throat> but their God is, um, is working with, with Moses. Uh, and um, preparing um, Moses to, with, the, with the Ten Commandments and uh, laws that the people need to abide, abide by and so forth, uh, a special time with, with Moses and God in that mountain. Uh, and, and some of the details are, are given, I say, in those chapters in, in Exodus. <clears throat> They've been on their journey now from, from uh, that great deliverance out, out of Egypt. And they're headed for the promised land, the land of Canaan. And uh, God saw fit to, because, well, because of their disobedience, just to put it uh, in short, uh, God saw fit to uh, have them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they got to the land of, promised land of Canaan. We come then to Joshua and Jericho, a part of, the, a part of uh, uh, their victory in defeating the enemy in, in, in the land of promise. And so we have old faithful, faithful Joshua. Um, he took up the leadership uh, after Moses. They come to Jericho. And they send spies to spy out the land before they attempt to take it. And the spies find a faithful woman. One who, and, and we realize we don't have all the details of this whole story, but we know in the New Testament, Rahab is in that great chapter of faith in, in Hebrews 11. She heard about the God of the Israelites. She knew about the God of the Israelites. She had some understanding of what God was doing in those Israelites. 
and she put her faith in, in their God. <clears throat> Whatever that was. But she did it in such a way that God blessed her and her house and wrote her name in the great uh, hall of faith in Hebrews. I want to look at, at that, just a couple of verses there very quickly. Joshua chapter 2. It's in Joshua and, and chapter 2. <clears throat> Joshua chapter 2 verses 18 and 19. And here are the spies... The uh, spies of the, of the Israelites now speaking to faithful Rahab. Joshua 2, beginning at verse 18. Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread. I must stop because I, I said, there it is. A scarlet thread of redemption. Uh, it's so beautiful. It's so interesting. Continue to read. Thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window which thou didst let us down by. And thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee. And it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of thy house into the street... His blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless. And whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be on our head, if any hand be upon him. I'll stop reading there. You see... The obedience and faithfulness of Rahab. The spies, the faithful spies said, if you're obedient and faithful, it will be a blessing not only upon you, but on your whole family. So it's coming to my mind right now. I'll just mention this. Young parents, young parents. You know my feeling. You know what I'm thinking. We are so responsible. And when we live in obedience to God and the authorities that he's placed over us in this world and church, we're preaching a, a big message to our children. In our obedience, obedience will be a blessing upon our families. And when we get out from under that authority and are disobedient, it's going to have a negative effect on our families. The faithful spy said, Rahab, listen, if you do what we say, if you are obedient, your family will be saved. Not just you, but your family will be saved. 
God help us to understand that lesson. The scarlet thread hanging out the window. Now she could have argued, and I don't want to take a lot of time with this, but I, I just say a couple of things here. She could have argued, and she could have, you know, figured out, you know, she could have been obstinate about it, and, and you know, and you know, well, what if I hang a blue one out, or a white one, or something, or a yellow one, you know, um, you know, uh, what if I, uh, you know just hang my shoe out the window or something, you know. What if I do it my way? Shall bind this line of scarlet thread in the window. Then you'll be saved in your household. Strict obedience. Strict obedience was important. It was a must for the salvation of her and her family. <clears throat> we move on to the time of the kings and Samuel anointed Saul and David and then, then came along Solomon and then the kingdom was divided. And we have Israel and eventually they were, uh, they were known as the northern kingdom. And they were taken into captivity eventually by the Assyrians. And we have uh, the southern kingdom or Judah. And they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. But in those difficult and, and dark times of Israel and Judah now, the divided kingdom, in those dark and difficult times, God... Strengthened the faithful. He heard the faithful. He rewarded the faithful. And so you have preachers and prophets like Jeremiah and, and Daniel and Ezekiel and others. And from this time came the, the synagogue and came some of the Old Testament scriptures, of course. You realize that, that these men wrote under the inspiration of God. And through these dark times and, and, and this writing that God calls through, through these faithful men came uh, prophecies of a, of a Savior and a more glorious time and a King. That God would, yes, God would send this Savior and King to His people one day somehow, he would be a redeemer. He would be their savior. And here they are under the, the, the bondage and, and captivity of the Assyrians and Babylonians. But God was promising a brighter day as they would turn to him. If they would turn to him. He would save his people from their sins and bring a deliverer, a leader. He was promising them everlasting hope. And, and the righteousness of God could be, could be them. We have many scarlet threads, as it were, throughout these passages in the Old Testament. But I'll just point out uh, 
quickly, a couple of them, and if you haven't looked at these two, two that stand out, but there's others also, of course, but if you haven't looked at these two recently, uh, well, yeah, you've got to have some homework. So, may, Psalm 22, entitled by, uh, title in many Bibles, The Psalm of the Cross. And, of course, then there's Isaiah 53. But both of these, both of these, I believe Psalm 22 was written by David. And then Isaiah, of course, uh, Isaiah 53. Um, it, it, it's like you're, you're standing right beside the cross. It's like prophecies that the people in that day could not understand every, everything that was written. Everything that David and Isaiah said in these passages, it's no way they could have understood them fully. Some parts of it, yes, but parts of it, no. It's God, it's the power of God working in these men and in their writings, pointing to today and pointing to Jesus and pointing to salvation through Jesus. That, of course, we look back now and we say, oh, wow, how could that be, be done? Well, it couldn't have, except for the miraculous work of, of the Holy Spirit through the, through the pen of these writers. When you read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, these, these passages of, of the cross of Jesus Christ and nothing else. And I'm just thinking right now. So we have these beautiful passages of prophecy in the Old Testament. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of, of them. Prophecies that were fulfilled in none other than Jesus Christ. And yet you have the, the Jews of today that refuse to believe in Jesus the Messiah. How the heart of God must, must grieve at that his, his own people, as it were, that, that will not believe in Jesus that he has provided for them. Thank God, bless God for believing Jews. Yes, praise God for them. <clears throat> okay, there was this 400-year period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What does that mean? It means there was a 400-year period between the last writings of the Old Testament and the time of, of Jesus, when Jesus came and then the Gospels are, are about, you know, Jesus and his life and ministry and death and resurrection. But there's about a 400-year period of time between these Old Testament prophecies and Jesus. What was happening? God was preparing the world for Jesus. That's what he was doing. God was preparing the world for Jesus. That scarlet thread of redemption was still flowing. You have Alexander the Great that spread, as it were, one culture and one language throughout the known world. And some of you high schoolers have studied this in school already, I'm sure. 
In the, in the, in the mostly populated world, the then known world, it, it, it's like it was one culture and, and, and one language, basically, and that was the Greek language. And then, then you had, as things went on, what we considered one world power. And Rome was in power around the world. The then known world at least. And then what happened? One savior was born for the world. And you know, children, many of us have memorized uh, the first part at least of, uh, of the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. And there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Was this a coincidence? Uh, no, it wasn't. It was God's plan. That all the world should be taxed. All the, the then known world, all the, the world where most people were, were lived, the populated part of the world... The, the power of Rome, the world of, of the Romans, the rule of Rome. So I'm saying during this 400-year period, God was preparing the world for, for one Savior, for one Jesus, for one Christ, for one Messiah. I'm going to just look now at just a few verses in the New Testament and invite you, if you would, to, to turn with me. Matthew chapter 17. I just want to look now and remind us then uh, of, Je- of words of Jesus himself. Uh, a few places here where, where Jesus would speak of his death and resurrection. He had been ministering with the, with the twelve and to the people for almost three years for at least a couple of years. And um, he, was, he was trying to, he was, he was doing his part in helping them understand that he would die and he would be the savior of the world. Uh, and, and he would die and he would rise again. Uh, it's good he, he put that part in there about his resurrection. And yet, you know, they, we, we know the story. They, they didn't understand uh, everything until, until after the fact. And that's okay. We would have been just like that too. But, um, but at least he did his part in, in showing them some things and telling them some things. Matthew chapter 17, uh, verse 9. Here we have the transfiguration when uh, Moses and Elias were there uh, and and. What, Peter, James, and John were there also, yeah. Uh, Matthew uh, chapter 17 and, and verse 9. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. What? <laughs> That's what he said to them. That's what he said. Now, if you weren't thinking along those lines... And if, he had, if you had forgot what he had said before about his death and resurrection, and apparently they had uh, from what we read various times, and he said that, you know, in one little sentence to them, uh, <laughs> that would have made you think. I'm sure it made them think. <laughs> Until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. In that short little phrase, he, 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 he taught of his, 
he spoke of his death and his resurrection. Look at verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, but I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. He's using Elias, the word Elias, and the name Elias now in a figure. And they did understand that one. They said, oh, he's referring to the death of John the Baptist. And he was. There would be someone coming to preach about me. There would be someone coming to prepare the way for me. And this is what they did to them. They killed him. And he said, the same thing will happen to me, Jesus said. Turn over quickly to Luke chapter 9. Luke in chapter 9. Verse 31, just one verse here. Luke 9, 31. This is uh, the story of the transfiguration also from Luke, verse 31, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. That's saying that Moses and Elias that were there at the transfiguration spoke of the death of Jesus. It was no secret. Moses and Elias from heaven knew that Jesus would, be the, would, be, would die, would give his life for the world, as it were. A couple of scriptures in John, all... All in John 12. John chapter 12. John chapter 12 verse 7. And here you have uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And uh, verse uh, 7 of chapter 12 of John. Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my burying has she kept this. So, so Mary came and had this ointment uh, for him. And, and she was questioned about how she was using this rich ointment. And uh, Jesus said in verse 7, Let her alone against the day of my burying has she kept this. Was Jesus upfront about his death and sacrifice for the sins of the world? He certainly was. He certainly did his part to inform the world and the local people. Same chapter, verses 32 and 33. <clears throat> Verse 32, Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The theme, the scarred thread of redemption. It's flowing right through the Bible, right through the lips of Jesus himself. Now, uh, Brother Lucas, when you led that uh, last song, Crown Him With Many Crowns, I mean, 
just every verse of that, something in the every verse of that song just jumped out at me because <laughs> crown him with many crowns. Homework again. <laughs> Don't look at it now. But uh, every verse of that song talks about the death of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, you start to talk, crown him with many crowns. It sounds like the uh, coronation of a king, and that's what it's about. So why are you going to talk about the death of the king when you're talking, singing this happy song about the crowning of the king? Dear people, he wouldn't be our king if he would not have died. He wouldn't be the king of our souls. He wouldn't be the man of our salvation if he would not have given his life. And the writer of that song, you know, I don't know what all scriptures he turned to to write that poem, but in every, this beautiful, triumphant song, he wrote about the death of Jesus in all four verses. Let's look at it. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Verses 6 to 10, Revelation 5, beginning at verse 6. And I behold, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb that had been slain. Uh, did the people of, uh, of that day know anything about slaying lambs? Uh, yes, they certainly did. They had been slaying lambs for sacrifices for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the theme hasn't stopped yet. In time to come, the theme goes on. The scarlet thread of redemption, blood shed for redemption, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four, four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why? For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God. How? By thy blood. Not just for a certain region, not just for a certain people, but out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, one for all. Verse 10, and has made us unto our God. Now listen, this is what he has done for us. And this is because of that, this is what it has made us. Verse 10, and has made us in the presence of God or in the eyes of God, kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. The, the job of the kings and the priests in the Old Testament, now that's us. In the New Testament, we are like kings and priests to God. Because of the blood of Jesus and because we can go directly to God through Jesus Christ. He is the great high priest. 
God himself is the great high priest. Not some man that walks into a, uh, some special tent once a year or something. Not that anymore. We are kings and priests because of the high priest Jesus Christ. Because of God himself. Wow. Two more verses in Revelation chapter 7. Chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14. Chapter 7, 13 and 14. Verse 13, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and which came they, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Wow. The same theme is still going that started way back there when blood was first shed in Genesis 3 for the sins of Adam and Eve. Wow. It's amazing. And a few years after that, first, third chapter of Genesis, we read, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And it's, and it's still saying the same thing here in Revelation in the future. It made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus said, you know, take this cup, take this cup and remember my shed blood for your sins. So let me read from 1 Corinthians 11 yet before we partake of the emblems. 1 Corinthians 11. And of course, uh, you can read in most of the Gospels uh, where Jesus actually, at that last Passover time, he, uh, it, it gives an account there where he took the, the bread and the cup and, and he said, you know, do this uh, in remembrance of me. And here in chapter 11 of uh, 1 Corinthians <clears throat> The Apostle Paul is just uh, repeating what Jesus had said in the account of what Jesus did that's also in the Gospels. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians uh, 11, just verses 23 to 26. <clears throat> Paul's writing here, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. You know, he, he made a ceremony out of it. He, he said, watch what I'm doing here. You know, they, had already, they had already eaten the Passover field of feasts. This was after supper, okay, it says in some places. Um, <clears throat> took bread, made, made a deal of it, made a ceremony out of it. And when he had given thanks, verse 24, he break it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Just like I, I break the bread here, you know, my, my body will be broken, will be wounded for you. This is my body which is broken for you. And so this do in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Then in verse 25, after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped. Uh, saying, this cup is the New Testament or the, the, the new covenant 
a new relationship, a new deal, a new covenant in my blood. Uh, so this cup represents what, what, what my blood will do for you. It's the New Testament or New Covenant in my blood. And so this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me or in remembrance of, of what my blood did for you. Okay, uh, Brother David, would you come and prepare the bread for us? I greet you this morning in Jesus' name. I invite you to John chapter 13. As I was meditating on this passage, I was impressed again with the words of Jesus in verse 14. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For many of us, we have heard this John 13 passage read and expounded on from the day we were born. I don't even remember the first time I heard this passage read, and probably many of you could say the same thing. But for the disciples, what Jesus was showing them here was a brand new concept. First, for the master to wash the servant's feet, and then second, for the servants to wash each other's feet. And so imagine being one of the disciples, not only witnessing what Jesus had done, or witnessing what Jesus had showed them, but being told to practice this among yourselves. And so imagine the disciples, I mean, what? Wash one another's feet? You're kidding me. Each of the disciples had a unique set of feet. And so do we. You know, there is not a matching set of feet in this room. You may find someone with the same shoe size as you, the same length, the same width, but if you would take your feet and put them beside that person's feet, they would be distinctly different. Years ago, we were out on the beach on the Pacific Ocean and of course we were barefooted and someone pointed out that my nephew Brendan and my feet look identical and so what we did I put my right foot out and he put his left foot up right beside mine and we took a picture and at first glance they looked identical but if you studied that picture you could soon see that they were uniquely different each of the disciples had a unique set of feet, and along with the unique set of feet was a unique personality. Jesus said, I want you guys to wash each other's feet. Simon Peter, impulsive, hot-tempered, at times dense. James and John, known as sons of thunder, vengeful and fiery at times selfish and conceited, wash feet, Andrew, enthusiastic 
inquisitive, resourceful, Matthew, penitent, hospitable, Thomas, washed feet with him, doubting, questioning everything. James, the son of Alphaeus, he was quiet. He stayed out of the limelight, liked to be on the side. Thaddeus, he was inquisitive. Simon the Zealot, patriotic, loyal, passionate, sacrificial. And then Judas Iscariot, greedy, deceitful, treacherous, remorseful. Philip, literal, often confused. And then Bartholomew, known as Nathaniel, skeptical. And now Jesus is saying to his disciples, if I then your Lord and master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. In my words, Jesus is saying, I washed your feet knowing all about you, your strong points, your weak points, your unique points, your aggravating points. Now, I want you to do the same, knowing what you know about each other, and wash each other's feet. Let's read John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was fr- and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them.
This morning, like the disciples, we are here today with unique feet. And like the disciples, we are here today with many of the same unique character traits as they. And like the disciples, our feet have been washed by Jesus Christ. Through the washing of the blood of Christ, we are sanctified. We are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Why do we wash feet? We could talk about that for quite a length of time. From verse 14, I see two simple reasons for having a feet washing service. Now, maybe I should call it a foot washing service. I'm not sure which is proper. I looked in the um, hymn book, and there's a selections of, of hymns, and it says foot washing there. But it seems to me like we're washing feet, so I'm going to call it feet washing. But if I'm wrong, you'll have to correct me later. But from verse 14, I see two simple reasons for having a feet washing service. The very first part of the verse, if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet. Feet washing is an, an expression of an humble gratitude to God. Humble gratitude simply for the washing that Jesus Christ has done in our lives. Humble gratitude to God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins. Feet washing is an expression of humble gratitude to God. And then second, why do we wash feet? The last part of verse 14, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. Feet washing is an expression of love and respect for our brothers and sisters. 1 John 4.11 says it very simply. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And I'd like to change that verse up just a little. Beloved, if God so washed us, we ought also to wash one another. And so back to verse 14, if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought. And I like that word ought. It has the thought of correct. It's right. It's appropriate to wash one another's feet. God bless you as we go through this feet washing service.